as we began to approach that day on December 25th that we celebrate the birth of Christ, um, the Advent, if you will, the Advent being the first appearing of Christ as He um, came and dwelt among human beings. You may ask yourself, because I have a few times in the last few months, why would we use the book of Zephaniah as we enter into the Christmas season? Normally, we would use Luke. Maybe we would use Matthew. There are a few sermons that can be drawn from places like John chapter 1. Maybe we would go to Isaiah and we would read about the wonderful counselor born to us. But why Zephaniah? Well, as you've noticed so far, Zephaniah does not paint a very pretty picture of what is ahead. Zephaniah thus far has been filled with judgment. It's been filled with God's anger towards sin. And yet, I think it is highly appropriate as we get toward Christmas... Because again, we ask the question, is there any hope? And as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we see the greatest, or at least the second greatest, display of hope that there is in the Scriptures. The birth of Christ, God coming and dwelling among us, is the reason that we have hope. And of course, Him going to the cross after leading a sinless life and dying in our place is the greatest cause of hope that we can have. And so I think very appropriately Zephaniah leads us toward that hope. That hope that can only be found in Christ. And so as we continue to look today at Zephaniah, I hope that you have that in mind. That coming up quickly is the hope that is found in the birth of Christ. But we can't enjoy the birth of Christ. We can't enjoy this Christmas season unless we understand what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. If we get to Christmas and we have only talked about the good news that is found there in those great stories of what Christ has done and how He was born and how all of those things came about. If we get there without realizing where the people of God were, what they were dealing with, what they were facing in God's judgment and His exile, if we get to Christmas without thinking about what all was going on before, I think we miss something very special. I think we miss part of the excitement of the shepherds as they, as they ran to see Jesus and Mary and Joseph. We miss the excitement of the wise men as they walked and rode for hundreds and thousands of miles to to see this newborn king. 
If we don't understand where they are coming from, I think we miss part of the reason that Christmas is so special. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and when you have that, if you'll stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. You may be seated. Before we can get to Christmas and the birth of Christ, we come to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 1, and God begins this part of Zephaniah's prophecy by saying, Woe! to her who is rebellious and defiled. He starts off with a warning. If you think back in the weeks that we have had previously, we have seen God pour out His judgment upon the other nations that were around Israel. Many of them had mocked Israel. They had mocked God's people. They had made fun of them. They had pushed them around. They have taunted them and believed themselves to be far superior to the people who God had chosen for Himself. But now, as we come here, we return to the warnings and the woes that we saw back earlier in chapter 1. God comes back around to talking about His people. If you notice in the Scriptures, God does not leave the topic of His people very frequently. He does so because it is His people who He has called, who He has chosen, who He has made His own, that He requires the most of. They are the most responsible because they have been given the most. They know the most about the things of God. He has called them into a relationship with Himself. And in doing so, He has made them greatly responsible. 
I would urge you this morning to realize that if you claim the name of Christ, if you claim that you are one of God's children, it means that God is holding you greatly responsible for making that claim. It's amazing how often people who claim the name of Christ throw that around. We can see it very clearly in the statistical analysis that is done of our country. When, when person after person is surveyed and they call themselves a Christian, and yet by biblical standards there is nothing evident in their life that gives you that impression. It is something that we should run from calling ourselves a Christian if we are not going to strive to live by the standards of the Lord. So why is it that he warns them in chapter or in verse 1? He warns them because what they exhibit in verses 2 through 4 are very very terrible signs of their disbelief. As a matter of fact, these seven verses deal primarily with the lack of belief for God's people. And friends, you and I, as members of this church, as a part of the body of Christ, we need to realize that disbelief is a great sin that easily entraps us. The great irony as we approach Christmas is that too many people who claim the name of Christ identify much more with the secular meanings of Christmas, with the material meanings of Christmas than they do with the story of God leaving heaven and dwelling among us. And I would say that that is because of our disbelief. Look at the signs here in verses 2 through 4 of their disbelief. The first grouping here is refusal. First, they refuse to listen to God. Verse 2 she listens to no voice. There's only one voice that the people of God needed to be listening to. Only one voice that they had to, that they needed to listen to that would give them direction and clarity for their life. There was but one voice and they refused to listen. Friends, I find it both sad and appalling at the number of believers, or at least the number of people who claim the name of Christ, but they refuse to listen to the voice of God. They would say something like, well, I know the Bible says, but. I know the Bible says, but. I know the Bible says that I should do this, but this is what I feel. Or I know the Bible says we should do this, but this is what I think. Friends, the first sign that Zephaniah gives of the people's disbelief is their refusal to listen to God. And if we ever get to that point in our lives, if we get to that point as a church, 
If we get to that point as believers in Christ, trust me, we have no hope any longer. If we refuse to listen to God, then we're going to have no idea where we're going. We're going to have no direction. We're going to have no way to get there. Their first sin of refusal is their refusal to listen to God. Now, secondly, next line in verse 2, she accepts no correction. He is talking here about His holy city. He is talking about Jerusalem. He is talking about the place where His presence dwells in the temple. And He says she accepts no correction. If we refuse to listen to the voice of God, then we're most definitely not going to listen to His correction. And if you're like me, God attempts on a daily, if not hourly, basis to correct my thinking and my actions. It is either when His Spirit speaks and we know those moments, or it is when we pick up His Word and we begin to read and we see, this is what God has said, and this is what I am doing or thinking, and I am wrong. Friends, that's okay. It's really okay to admit that we're wrong when God has corrected us. I've been in ministry for going on 10 years now, and I know that the things that I would have said 10 years ago, the topics that I would have thought were important are no longer relevant to me because God has greatly corrected those things. And 10 years from now, I'll look back on things that I do now and go, that was just not important. Or look how I was thinking wrongly. Isn't it great to know that instead of allowing us to march forward in life doing the wrong things, thinking the wrong things, going in the wrong direction, that God still corrects us. Some of you probably don't like correction. I definitely don't like it. I'm the type of person that when I would get a paper back in school and I would see the red marks or see that something needed to be changed, I was like, no, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, listen, I've argued about misspelled words before, and I'm the worst speller in this room, I promise. I got in an argument one time when I was in an English class because the, the professor said that the poetry, I'm sorry, the poetry that I had written was not grounded enough in realistic things. So I left that day and I decided, he may have been right, I'm obviously not a poet, so maybe he knew what he was talking about, but I left that day sure that he was an idiot who just did not know what he was talking about. That he was some liberal professor who was trying to ruin my mind. Again, he was probably right. Again, I don't write poetry anymore, so I don't know which of us was correct in that, but I don't like correction. But if we accept correction from God, He changes our direction. 
He changes the course that we're on and He points us closer to Himself. He points us back to the cross when we begin to stray to the left or to the right. When we begin to go in a direction that is not pleasing to Him, God corrects us and brings us back. The sin of disbelief for Jerusalem was that they would not accept correction. Thirdly, look at the next line. She does not trust in the Lord. Trusting in God is not an easy thing. Anybody who tells me that they do it, they never have any questions, they never have any concerns, they never have any doubts, I don't believe that they're really trusting in God. Because trusting in God means that we will end up places that we cannot fathom. We will end up going and doing things that are far beyond our own abilities. You've heard the line that God will never put more on us than we can bear. Sometimes I wonder if that's actually accurate. Because if God puts more on us than we can bear, if He breaks us down to where we can't do it on our own, all we can do at that point is trust in Him. If He never puts more on us than we can bear, then we can do it on our own. Then we can get through it on our own. And that's not trust. They did not trust in God. They did not trust in Him. He's going to demonstrate in just a minute why they should have complete trust, but they refused to trust in Him. And friends, so often we do that. We become like Peter as he is walking out on the water and he has his eyes fixed on Christ. And as he walks towards Christ, he realizes at one point that he is walking on water. Something he could not do on his own. And he begins to get worried. His eyes begin to look not at the Savior, but at what is going on around him, and he begins to sink quickly. I think you and I, we, we will look at Christ and we will follow Him, but as we get closer, the storms get worse, and the things around us, the, the noises get louder, and we have a tendency to look away. Friends, that's disbelief. I'm not saying that I haven't, and I'm not saying that you haven't, and I'm not saying that I want and that you want, but I am telling you that is disbelief. We should never refuse to trust that God knows what He's doing. Even in the circumstances that are most difficult. Fourthly, look here, she does not draw near to her God. The thing about Jerusalem is she was drawing near to everyone else. She was following after everyone else. She was going the route of everyone else. She was worshiping everyone else. But she would not draw near to her God. It wasn't someone else's God. It wasn't some other nation's God. It was her God. Friends, God is our God. He has called us His children. He has died for us. His Son has come and suffered the death that you and I deserved. And He has done that for you so that He would be your God. How sad it is that we have the tendency to worship everything but our Creator. 
this is kind of easy on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Because we know that the most looked forward to day of last week was not Thanksgiving, but it was Black Friday. On Black Friday, it's so tempting. I don't know how many times I checked the Black Friday ads. As a matter of fact, I have on my phone a Black Friday app. I have a subscription to the Black Friday app ads. And they began months ago sending me pre-release copies of Black Friday. Walmart had a TV. If you could get in line at 6 o'clock on Thanksgiving, a 32-inch TV was $98. Of course, that's way too small to go in my house. I'm just saying it's 32-inch, $98. And there was a lot of irony on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, because people kept making the point that on Thursday we are thankful for everything that we have. And on Friday, we got to have more stuff. And I'll be honest with you, when I go Black Friday shopping, I didn't this year, but normally when I do, I'm not going to buy stuff for other people. Confession, I'm buying it for this guy. Because that's about the only day that I can afford some of that stuff. And if I can find it on sale, I've been at Walmart at 6 o'clock for a camera that now I wouldn't even use to take pictures. I would barely let my kids play with it because it's so old and outdated. But at 6 o'clock in the morning, I was in line to get that camera. And yet, how many people who would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning 6 o'clock in the morning to go shopping on Black Friday would not get up at 9 o'clock to come to church. It's because we won't draw near to God. We refuse. I need to move on because I'm taking a lot of time. Verse 3. I've gotten to verse 3. There's signs of disbelief. These are among the people. They won't listen to God. But there's also signs among the leaders. There's signs among the leaders of the people that they have great disbelief. Look in verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. The officials, the people that are put in charge... The king, the princes, the leaders who have been placed over the people, the people that we understand from God's Word have been placed there by Him. We don't always understand the reason. I don't understand why there is a dictator in North Korea who will kill Christians simply for having a Bible, but God has put him there for a reason. I don't understand why one billion people in China live in a communist country that for the most part is closed off to the gospel, but God has a reason and the church there is growing. But these officials are corrupt. They prey like a lion on the people. It's what a lion does. It stalks its prey and it takes them out. And this is exactly what the officials are doing to the people. They are preying on them. We should be leery of officials who prey on the people. You might say, Pastor, that's all of them. You might not be wrong. But that's a sign of the disbelief, not just of the officials, but of the people who would put these officials in charge who prey on the people. Secondly, into verse 3, 
Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. These are judges who work in darkness. The judicial system is supposed to be open. It's one of the reasons I think it's good that they put trials on TV. It might seem like a big spectacle, but guess what? You know what happens. There's no excuses. You can't say that it was done in the dark of night and nobody knows. A few months ago when the felon in Florida was on trial for stabbing or for shooting uh, that 17-year-old, guess what? They put the trial on TV. And not only that, they put all the stuff on TV that the jury didn't even see. It was open and transparent. Whether you like the verdict or not, at least it was out there where everybody could see it. These judges don't work that way. They work at night. Think about when Jesus was put on trial. They didn't arrest him in the middle of the day. He didn't get a chance to have a defense. He didn't get an attorney who came and stood with him and advocated for him. The great advocate didn't need an advocate. He was arrested at night. The trial was was a sham. Procedure was not followed. That is a sign of disbelief. There's no greater example than the trial of Jesus because all of those men, or at least most of those men in that room, had no belief that God could be using Jesus the way He said. The officials, the judges, look now He gets into the religious group. He says the prophets are fickle. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. A sign of disbelief is that the Word of God becomes fickle. Think about that. A prophet who's supposed to stand up before the people and proclaim God's Word. And and instead of doing that, he gets up, he proclaims something this day, the next day he proclaims something else. The next day he says something else. When he's got this group of people, he says one thing, and when he's got this group of people, he says another. The prophets are fickle. When the Lord does not change, how can His Word change? When the Lord does not change, how can His prophets be fickle? It's just not possible. Look fourthly here. The priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The priests are given charge of what is holy. They're given, they're given the responsibility of going and standing between God and the people. You know, the prophet would stand between God and the people and speak for God. Well, the priest would go and do it the other way. The priest would be the one who would speak for us. Isn't it great that Jesus stands in the place as both prophet, speaking to us from God and speaking to us to God as our priests? These are signs of disbelief. And as we see in the next three verses, they break God's heart. They break God's heart because there is no reason for this disbelief. There is no excuse. God does not accept our excuses. We'll not stand before God one day and say, God, I... I didn't know this, or God, I thought that, or God, my parents did this, or God, I, this happened to me when I was a kid, or God, I lost my job. It's, it's not going to work. There's no excuses. Look why. 
verses 5 and 6. These are the signs of the Lord's dedication. We have disbelief. Here's God's dedication to us. First, verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. God dwelt in that city. His presence dwelt in the temple. And the God who dwelt there is righteous. We're sinful. We mess up. We don't live up to God's standard. But God is always righteous. He doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. He doesn't slack off. God doesn't make excuses. God doesn't quit trying. God is righteous in all things. And He's perfectly so. And a righteous God is worth believing in. God is righteous in all things, and yet we still disbelieve. Not only is He righteous, look at the second part. He does know injustice. God does know injustice. God doesn't wrong anybody. God, God doesn't Get to the point where He just doesn't like you anymore and so He just does away with you. If you look at all the nations that we talked about in chapter 2, all the people who God had said He was going to pour out His judgment on, it wasn't as if they were standing there innocent and God just on a whim one day decided to destroy them. God doesn't do anything on a whim. Rather, He has no injustice. They had sinned greatly against Him. He is the perfect and holy Creator of all things. What's shocking is not that He would show judgment, but that at any point He would show mercy. If you want to argue that God shows injustice, it would never be on His judgment. It would always be on His mercy. God, why would You show Mercy. Think about Jonah as Jonah has been told to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to them. And he doesn't want to go. Why? Because they're evil people. They're terrible people. They have done terrible things to God's people. And Jonah doesn't want to go. Why? Because God, you might show mercy on them. That's Jonah's argument. He doesn't stand there and go, God, you shouldn't, you shouldn't destroy them. They're good people. God, aren't we all basically good on the inside? You should know. The great shock is that God would show mercy. He does know injustice. Next part, look, he, he shows forth His justice. This is a little different than He does know injustice, but He also shows His justice. He shows His justice. He doesn't keep it hidden, but rather He allows people to see this is who I am. I'm a God who hates sin. And I'm going to show that. I'm not going to hide it so that one day you're surprised by that, but rather I'm going to show my justice. I'm going to allow it to be sent out. And then fourthly here, He does not fail. Each dawn, He does not fail. This may be the biggest reason of them all for us as human beings. 
we begin to show disbelief when we get it in our minds and we, we decide it in our heart that God has failed. Think about the countless times in the Bible where God did not work as quickly as someone wanted Him to. Think about in the book of Joshua and they had marched around the city. They had marched around the city and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And they all rushed in. And they conquered the city, but, but one man decided he was going to break what God had said. And what happened the next time they were not successful? Because they did not listen to God. Or if you go back to the book of Numbers where the spies are sent into the, they're sent in to look at the uh, country. They're sent in to look at Cana. See if they can conquer it. What do they do? They come back with this bad report. We can't do it. God says, fine. If you think you can't do it, if you're not going to believe in me, if you think I'm going to fail, then you cannot go. And what do they do? They march in anyways and they get beat. God doesn't fail. Our disbelief causes us to fail. God will allow us to fall in our disbelief. But let me promise you that God does not fail. And He proves that to the people here in verse 6. He lays out for them what He has done. He says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. He said, you're worried. You're worried about these nations who are coming in and surrounding you. Look what I've done to them. Look what I've done to the people who have come up against you. He says, you're my people and I love you. Look what I have done. And it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart that they still do not believe. Look at his disappointment in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, I said, this is in the past. It's what God has said previously. Surely you will fear me. This is what his worshipers do. The worshipers of God live in a fear of the Lord. Not a scared fear, but a respect for what? Look, for His righteousness, for His justice, for the fact that He does not fail. His worshipers stand in awe of that. But they didn't. They didn't believe. He says secondly here, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. This is what his children do. He said, surely you will accept correction. Surely God feels that when his people go in the wrong direction, he can speak as their father and say, you need to go this way. This is what I've commanded. This is what I've told you to do. This is where I've told you to go. And God stands disappointed because His people would not do so. He stands ready to pardon. He says if they would do so, verse 7, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that, you, that I have appointed against you. 
If they would only fear Him and accept His correction, He would pardon them and forgive them and show them His great love. That's what He cries out for us to do. Turn from doing it yourself. Turn from going in your own direction. Follow after Me. Follow after what I have said. Follow after what I have called you to do. He stands there disappointed because the one that he has dedicated himself to, the one who he has called as his people, he says there at the end of verse 7, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. All the more. They were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The God who is dedicated to them, the God who has called them, the God who has brought them out of bondage and given them their own land, He stands there ready to love and forgive them. And they spit in His face. The more He dedicates Himself to them, the more He shows them love and mercy the more eager they are to disobey Him. Friends, surely you can see how this is leading us toward Christmas. That as the people God had called continually disobey Him, as their sacrifices are not enough, as their prayers are not enough, God, all the while knowing what they are going to do, is preparing to send them and us a Savior. Because they would not believe. Friends, our disbelief is disappointing to God. But I would say it does not stop there. It's not only disappointing, but it is sinful. And it is destructive. Disbelief will destroy your life. It will destroy the life of our church. No good can ever come of it. It destroys society. It destroys religious institutions. It destroys everything. In John chapter 20, just after the time when Jesus had been resurrected and He had appeared to His disciples and Everyone was present there except for Thomas. And so later, Thomas is there and Jesus appears again. Can you imagine? Thomas missed it. You know, he missed it the first time. He wasn't there. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he, he just wasn't there. But the second time he's there, and Jesus shows up. And we like to give Thomas a bad rap for this. We like to call him Doubting Thomas because he wanted to, to feel Jesus' side. He wanted to see the scars. And let me promise you, if I was in that position, I'd want to see him too. The Bible tells us that one day we will see them. But Jesus goes to Thomas and he, he offers the evidence that Thomas wants. He offers the evidence and he tells Thomas... Don't disbelieve, but believe. Don't disbelieve, but believe. 
Friends, here in this passage in Zephaniah and countless thousands others in the Scriptures, God gives us the evidence we need to believe. He gives us the evidence of His goodness and His righteousness and He has given His life for us. So He stands before us and He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. Some of you are here this morning and you don't know Christ. You don't believe. You have disbelief. Whatever it is. Maybe it's because you just don't know who Jesus is. Maybe it's because you have hatred toward the church. Maybe it's because you you just don't like religion. I don't know what it is. But for whatever reason, you do not believe. I want to promise you that a life of disbelief can bring nothing but sorrow. A life of disbelief is a life of no hope. God has called on us to believe. He didn't do so with no evidence. He didn't didn't want us to have to do so on what you might say is blind faith, but He has given us countless bits of evidence. He has given us countless information to help us to understand who He is. He has revealed Himself in His Word. He has not left us with no knowledge and no hope. If that's you this morning, I, I would like to share with you how you can believe. But for the most of you who are here, you do believe. You do know Christ. You followed after Him. He has changed your life. He, His Spirit dwells within you. He, he guides you in your life. But I want to tell you this, that we all struggle with disbelief. Whatever it is, mine, it often comes when I am sitting in the back row at a funeral. Not when I'm preaching a funeral, because you don't have time to think then, but, but if you go to a funeral and you sit on the back row, and you sit there and you're listening to the person speak, there's a casket out in front of you or, or a box if someone's been cremated, whatever it is. And I find my mind every now and then going, is that it? It seems so final. I mean, it really is. It's because my sinful nature wants to play with my mind, and sneak in those moments of disbelief. They don't come when I'm preaching. They don't come when I'm sharing Christ with someone. They don't come when I'm studying for a sermon. They come in those moments where where we think about those things. Where we think about the finality of death where we think about what is eternity? How big is it? What, what does it look like? Wouldn't it have been great if, if God had given us a little more information on that? We all struggle with it. But our God has proved Himself over and over and over. And friends, He calls us Despite our circumstances, despite the situation we're in, despite what we're going through, He calls on us to believe. 
is something we need to work on. It's something we need to strive for. He calls us to believe. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, I want to believe. God, I, I need those moments of disbelief taken from me. I need your hope to envelop my heart and help me to fight through those moments. God, I'm grateful that you lay out for us your dedication, and God, you do it in spite of our disbelief. God, we see countless times, countless times when your people, they had a problem with their faith. They had a problem in belief. But God, you stood there ready, ready to forgive, ready to strengthen their heart, ready to encourage them, ready to guide them. God, in a room this size, there are plenty here who struggle with belief. God, encourage their hearts in this moment. Be with them in those times of difficulty or weakness. God, help them. Help them to see your love and your grace. And God, for those here this morning who don't know you, God, I pray that you would call them to yourself that you would show them their disbelief and you would help them to believe. And I pray this morning in Christ's name, amen. If you'd stand with me this morning, we're going to sing. And as we do, it doesn't matter what the words are on the screen, whatever words we're singing, would you take a moment, and regardless of whether you've been a believer most of your life or whether you're new to the faith, whichever it is, would you ask God this morning to help you to believe? Think about Thomas. He had the, the witness of, of the ten other guys. They said, hey, we saw Jesus. He was here. And he still needed help. Friends, that's where we're at. If you're not here this morning, I mean, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, I just invite you to come. His message is simple, but it's life-changing. It's something that gives us life. It's something that we can't live without. It's something that without it we have no hope. Maybe you don't know much about it this morning. I'd love to share with you. I pray that you respond to God's word as we sing.